he would just like, I would kill myself. And then I think I was done. And he goes, okay, another, another set. I said, you told me four sets. And he said, you're still recovering. No. Whereas before, if I went on a long ride or something that had less precision in my training and much more time involved, I also attacked and, and depleted those systems to the level of like wanting to come home, the usual, get this, not even have the energy to make a smoothie, you have to make a smoothie, you have to do the rolling out, just want to lay there, but like for hours, you know, afterwards, like just depleted versus just like spring boing. Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, audience. Today's episode is a big one. I'm speaking with Jesse Stensland. Jesse is a phenomenal athlete. And by that, I don't just mean someone who's accomplished a lot in her career as a professional triathlete or a Division I swimmer in college. I don't just mean someone who won a bronze medal at the Xterra World Championships. I mean someone who, if you lived in a tribe of 60 people, she would be hunting with the men and killing the buffalo and then helping drag it back to the camp so that everyone could be fed. Jessie's that type of person. She's also a critical thinker and has a way of approaching conventional lines of thought about a variety of different topics in a way that I'm willing to bet you haven't quite considered. So there's a lot to unpack in this episode. Jessie also has a beautiful ability to speak straight from her soul, and it comes right out of her mouth. And remarkably, when she does that, it's cohesive and understandable and intelligent and offers a lot of insight. I think it's fair to say most people don't quite have that skill. So buckle your seatbelt and hang on to drop into Jessie's world. A few notes about today's episode. One, Jesse's currently in Oaxaca, Mexico. And I apologize. The internet is an amazing thing, but it has its limits. And there are times when she's a little bit pixelated. We did our best to manage the connection and edit out the parts that were a bit choppy and redo them. So if you pick up on some of that, sorry about that. It was the best we can do. Um, in a future episode, when Jesse's back in Boulder, I'm going to have her sit down in person and then we will have no such challenges. But for now, we get to have the internet playing a role in our understanding of the conversation. Being as Jesse's in Mexico during this conversation as well, you're going to hear some birds and some dogs and some other miscellaneous noises. And that's just part of the experience. Just want to give you a heads up on that. I think the birds are really cool. They add something nice. So without any further prognostication, please enjoy Jesse Stensland. You understand like your, yeah, relatability. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. So we have some parallel paths in that respect because you, of course, were a pro triathlete for many years. You were a collegiate swimmer, right? Um, you, like me, you, you finished college. I did not. Um, well done. <laughs> and <laughs> woohoo. <laughs> and then you went on to, uh, win a bronze medal at Xterra worlds amongst other athletic achievements. And Sorry. Are we, can you tell me if we're, oh, yeah, we're, we're going, it, we're just we're talking, going. we're talking, we're talking, but we're oh. recording. So <laughs> right on. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Ready, set, go. Um, and like I said, I mean, I tend to run things pretty organically. So 
you know, you can always you can always chop and chop later. Jan is a ninja. All right, cool. Ninja editor. So good. Yeah. Just the other day, I caught your video on Feet Freaks a couple days ago. I did some did some homework and saw your whole story about your challenges with your own feet and kind of all the different pathways you went through and all the things you learned about how your foot function and specifically your right foot kind of wasn't quite, as you said, stacked the way that it should have been. Mm. And that impacted your running and gave you some other challenges, right? Um, will you unpack that for us? I think that's a fascinating part of of your journey and kind of a big part of what led you to be where you are today. I'm going to dive in here, Colby. Do I, it. I don't know who's in charge, but um, <laughs> you are. I was thinking that it just, I am so, I, I've been through so many layers, as you can imagine, through, right, as we just kind of mentioned, that to give a perspective on the words that come out of my mouth today, one has to have like a fast track through a, a quick who the heck is Jesse and how'd I get here? Like Please. we said, yes. and that's really, it's really easy. If I just keep it pretty simple, everyone can relate to, I was a professional, no, I was a division one college swimmer. I turned to be a professional triathlete of which I was a broken, broken, normally like the usual broken mm. uh, triathlete who just said, Oh yeah, I was a swimmer. So my knee hurts. My ankle hurts. My Achilles hurts. It's always swollen ice. This rest on that, break the back or one little vertebrae, you know, just by running, mm. um, wait on that, come back. So I have, I have injured pretty much everything from the very top of my head. I mean, talking about bike crashes or slipping on floors to, uh, broken bones from the hand to the back, to the ankle and the lots of things from head to toe. Wow. That said, the transition then during as a triathlete, I ended up meeting athletes performance in a place that put movement first. And this was kind of a long time ago, 2004. So they absolutely made me a beautiful, like I, can't, I use the word robot because I'm so much freer in my movement today. But as far as being a machine, right, from this movement-based training way back in 2004, which completely shifted how I trained. And you asked me this in our, our, our talk too as well. Like, do people relate to how I trained? Was it different than others? I, I, I kind of was in this like lab though of movement-based training, 04, which if you realize this is like way before a lot of people started talking about this, mm -hmm. more like in 2010 and maybe about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. a lot came to fruition and even more today. So just take that, like I had this reset and I became a machine. I haven't had a chronic pain or injury since. I've hurt myself. But it has not lasted more than six weeks that the body needs to take to heal. And I've moved on. Really incredible. Amazing. And so that was 04 and still as a professional triathlete, which lasted only a couple more years to the point where I, I was primed to go to the Olympics to be that athlete that could just tick off the boxes and be there because it made so much more sense to me um, how to do it. There was no questions. A lot came up with in your talk also with uh, that I've been listening to some of your podcasts about it's just like when the big day comes, it's kind of still the unknown. Like there's stress related to that and you just don't know. Mm -hmm. And I tell you the biggest thing, and this relates a lot to who I am today, that they gave me in that kind of movement-based training, like tick the boxes for the fundamental things you need to be amazing and then go move with it. And for me, that was swimming and biking and running at the time versus now I want to kayak and mountain bike or dance or break dance or jump off of a, a building and parkour. And I can, I mean, a small one first, but like, like I, everything works. So basically the, the confidence they gave me when I towed the line every time from 2004 to the, for the rest of my any of races I started or now in just everyday life, I towed the line with complete confidence that I can rely upon everything I've done. I understand it and it's going to come out, period. 
Mm. And if anything special comes on top of that, it comes special because, you know, you're in a special occasion. Then you're like right next to someone racing and like this special like thing you can't recreate is going to come out. But not, never did I not then be able to express and be who I was that mm. I trained for confidently. And it always came to fruition. Mm. This might sound like idealistic or some kind of way out there thing based on what we've talked about lately. And, and hopefully we can go into that. But they gave me that not only for my professional career, then for the rest of life, this confidence in my body and the ability to, the way I knew how to then maintain it. That said, I was also in the gym. I was in a, a four walls. I was using equipment. I was doing all that stuff. And the, the progression from about 2012 since then, and then taking a one-way ticket and going on some travels just to let the world teach me what, I, what, they need, what it needed to teach me, that was 2013. And we're like seven years into this freedom from not being a professional athlete or a racer, but still a super active person. At times that meant jumping in races as long as the Joburg to see, which was nine days, 900 kilometers across, uh, across South Africa. And it was no problem. Did I prepare for it? Ah, just by being a guide in Costa Rica. Did I eat anything special? No, I just ate what they put in front of me, which was a whole lot of food. <laughs> just, just to give you an idea of how like free I have been. And mm. yet to, to even pushing my body to some of those highest levels, a couple adventure races, another triathlon. Um, and yet the whole while just doing it because it was hella fun and not to say it was at the highest level of what I might do it differently, but what I learned was nature, nature and nature. And that's my word of the day, as you might, you know, um, I really got to go closer to nature. And what I realized was by doing that, I was just a more whole, more vital, more possible human mm -hmm. in, in my whole journey. Like everything is possible and I'm confident in everything. If, if it's a skill, I know I can get it if I want it. Mm -hmm. I might not want it, but I'm not going to get hurt, hurt, like chronically hurt or like have some dis-ease, you know what I mean by dis-ease, yes. right? Yes. Dis-ease through this whole thing, right? The whole time. No way. Like, so in 2015, when I met parkour, no doubt I wrecked myself. The same with when I met mountain biking. Like I have no problem just chucking myself at things with this confidence that may be a little over the top at times, <laughs> but I have to reel it back, reel it back in, you know, cause mm -hmm. I, but I, I took responsibility for those issues. I realized that when I tried to dive and roll on the ground, I did it wrong. So yes, I slammed on my shoulder and yes, my mm -hmm. tissues moved and yes, it hurt for a while. And yes, I had to be a little careful with my movement, but I didn't go to a doctor. I didn't get a diagnostic and my degree is in exercise science. I don't know if we mentioned that, but like I have way back when been to doctor's office, learned how to write those reports, like mm -hmm. those reports, like so many words, like so many details, so many things we have to make up to make sense of this. When really it came down to, I smashed some soft tissue. I kept moving everything around while it healed and didn't affect its healing, right? Respect that it has to heal didn't infect it, but kept mm -hmm. moving my body in every other way and sport. I, it's not like, oh shoot, I can't do the thing I do now. No, I can do an infinite number of things with all these articulations I have in my body. So mm -hmm. do something else for a moment. But going back to, I wrecked myself that year parkour, like I said, an ankle, uh, an ankle, my ribs and all impact injuries and um, my shoulder and they healed and you quickly mentioned and I'll get back to the foot thing in a second how I hurt my ankle and that was part of my story for so long and I'll tell you in a sec how I rolled my ankle when I was a teenager and thought that that had impacted my whole life mm. really it was just the mentality thinking it did impact my whole life which stopped me from actually doing something about it because I thought it's just the way it was yep so yep. I almost forgot about that at this point in my life uh, because it, it, in 2015, I told you, no, it was 16 when I was doing these injuries. It's like six weeks later, I'm good. And I can tell you how 
what I had to do to get there. Keep mm. riding my bike, but be gentle about it. Don't crash your bike because you're going to have to step on your ankle and you can't use your ankle yet, but ride your bike. Right. Things like this. I had to modify some things, but I certainly didn't stop my life just while I was healing a bit because there's so many other things to do. And they healed at 40. At that time, I was 40. Right. When people say it's things are getting longer to heal. No. Right. Oh, it's I the vitality of how you use your articulations yeah. for a lot longer. Okay. Thanks. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, for a lot longer. Maybe, maybe at 115, talk to me about <laughs> this or like, I don't know yet, but I'm setting the ball, the ball high. You know, it's like, um, so fast forward all that to who I am today. And, uh, my, my I am, uh, I've been into all these sorts of mountain sports now, canyoneering, mountaineering, whitewater kayaking. And I'm talking about sprinkles, you know, enough to like get some super thrills, but not like majorly dive into each of them. Like they were my only sport anymore. So I'm able to get in a kayak and, you know, feel comfortable in the boat and go down class two rapids and just enjoy that day. And I may never get to class four, for example, but it was a really big deal to have this relationship in some ways with my body. Like you have to dance and kayaking. So I just, this is kind of a side note to let everybody know I've done quite a few like expressions of now this body that can just do stuff. I could choose not to do those things and not to explore more. And I could do the things I know and I could, but it's fun to have the option to want to try them if I can and, and, and do like breakdancing in 2017 came into my life. And then I was, I learned how to be a street performer and breakdance from 2017 till present day. Right. Mm -hmm. And that takes a lot on your wrists, on your arms, on your right, on your rolls on the floor and your relationship with the floor falling on the floor, but gracefully and powerfully. And, uh, mm -hmm. wow, just, the, just to have a body that was totally ready to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and it taught me a few things too. I had to prepare my wrists a little more. I could go on and on, but to snapshot, I am just this uh, body that nature, uh, my connection to nature, I do believe, and its textures, its variability, its, its uh, playfulness has laid the foundation for me to have, talk about freedom, what we think our country gives us or what our experience in life gives us. I have built this freedom like from the inside out, thanks to the environment I'm in from the outside in. And so freedom mm. is a big thing for me, thanks to nature and my uh, connectedness to it. And now I can go back to my journey about feet whenever you're ready. Wonderful. Yeah, I had several things come to me. I'm like scribbling notes um, just <laughs> to keep my my thoughts in line. But I mean, one point I want to touch on is just the the idea that you spoke about so many injuries that you had as a triathlete and you were just sort of dealing with all of them. And I think that's such a common theme. It's so easy for us to look at professional level athletes, you know, whether we're talking about professional triathletes or Tour de France cyclists or whatever in any sport and just assume that they are perfectly actualized and that they're functioning at their highest level. But I really think that's a misperception about professional sports. And it's more common to have athletes who are barely, who are held together by duct tape and, you know, whatever else, massage therapy and acupuncture and every other thing they can possibly find. They can scrounge in their toolbox or their support group to keep them going. And that's a testament to the will of the athlete, but it's also sort of a bit of an indication of how I think broken the sports paradigm is to some degree. And I know you and I will unpack this a little bit later, some philosophies on training and, and load and kind of yin versus yang load and in life and in training. But I think that's a, a really important point. And another thing that came to me is just your, your statement about how you have such confidence in your body and you learned that. And I think that's so fundamental. It's like, I kind of might view that as seeing the body as the perfect healing machine. 
which it is. And I've said this to several of my clients recently, and a few of them have given me looks like I'm from Mars, but it's true. Like we all have to have faith in our bodies. Our bodies want to be healthy. You have to give them the building blocks and the rest and the water and the positivity to allow them to be machines, but they want to express their ability to heal, you know, these things, these bodies, these biological spacesuits that we inhabit. And that's a powerful mindset to approach sport in. And even your concept that you spoke about how you just felt so equipped on the start line of a race to express all these movements that you were given in a way that you knew could be well expressed in to an optimum level or to a certain level. And I think that speaks to a philosophy of a lot of coaches have embraced this level of training or this type of training where we don't train to be on the day of world championships or your world cup or your Olympics or your state championships, whatever your goal is for the year, we don't train our athletes to be, to have this magic day where they suddenly reach for this extra 5% or 3% or whatever. We don't train them and then hope on a wing and a prayer that the taper goes perfectly and that everything just comes to together. What we do is we make their level so high that they are capable of winning the race on any given average day of training, mm, right? Exactly. And then, like you said, if magic, if something magic happens and, and then that perfect form comes together and you have a no chain day or a whatever, a no, I don't know what the equivalent in running, I guess it's a no shoe day, which we'll also touch on. Um, right. <laughs> and then, and if you have that, then you just smoke the field by even more. And then, then you break a record or you, you achieve a new high and, and that's great. But I think that's a really important part of being a well-trained athlete with a good foundation. Um, and then another point I think you made is really powerful is just I love what you said about being so free from being a professional athlete. I feel exactly mm. the same way. Like I loved being an athlete. I love being a pro. I love the training and the lifestyle. It's monastic. It's, it's so singularly focused, right? It's so myopic. Like every day you get up and you know exactly what you have to do. You've got your, your world cup that's in eight months and that gets you out of bed even when it's snowing or whatever, or, or causes you to solve the problem somehow. You're like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym and, and then I'm going to ride indoors or whatever you do. And that's a good thing to a degree because it gives us this light at the end of the tunnel. But at the same time, there's this burden of there's, there's the pressure of keeping up with perceived peers, which you are, which are real and imaginary. There's the perception that you're falling behind in your own workload. There's the perception that you aren't good enough, right? That's the primal fear. That's the the voice that always talks to us in the back of our head. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. You're not fast enough. You don't have a high enough VO2, whatever. It takes different forms, but it's fundamentally this primal fear. And that all this adds up to kind of a, a burden in a sense. It's, a, it's an assumed burden. It's a voluntary burden for most athletes, or at least they should realize that it is if they're expressing their athleticism consciously. And oh. so... When, but when you're done with that and, but at the same time you have that confidence in your body and you have your health, you're so free. It's like, I, you know what? I don't need to ride my bike today. I don't need to do all the things I've been doing for 25 or 30 years as an athlete. I'm just going to go for a walk around the block and see how long I can do a handstand, you know, repeatedly, yeah. or I'm going to see if I can do a hundred pushups in 10 minutes, which I can't yet, by the way working on it, or I'm going to do a, you know, reptile crawl up and down my driveway and my neighbors are going to look like I'm crazy. I don't really care that they, they already think I'm nuts. That's cool. You know, I'll still say hi to them or whatever yeah. it is I want to try. You know, I'm going to go climb these rocks and, and that's just so freeing to me to, to live in my body and celebrate my health and my function in such a way that is like as an athlete, especially a cyclist, cause cycling, man, the, the, 
the Venn diagram of cyclist abilities as an athlete is so small. I mean, we all heard the stories about people race all year and then they go on one hike with their girlfriend at the end of the season and they're wrecked for a week or they go for a run and they're wrecked and they roll an ankle or their best case scenario is they're so sore they can barely get out of bed for four days and they're just laughing about it. And cycling doesn't really make complete functional athletes who can do things like this. So it's so freeing to be able to just do what I want and and go for a ride and and be able to, I can still go ride six hours, but I don't have to do that consistently because I've just got, I don't know, I guess what you call old man strength, but in a good way. I think what I would add, uh, what do you think about this? Uh, is that if I could go back or if I could bridge that gap a little bit between it just being when I was professional, when you were professional, what I know now is that I could have been and actually was towards the end of my career a lot more free during my career. And that's kind of the message. I wanted to make the point. It's not like I wasn't free and I am free now. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of see that for your athletes and maybe where you could have been more free if, for example, I would have put a lot more nature into my life. Maybe not a lot more. It would have to depend on how much time you have, but what's Mm -hmm. it worth? And I do think a lot more time that we're spending as professional athletes training, some of that, some fraction of that could wow, make a huge difference if Mm. it was spent on that one hike up Sinitas or up a rocky terrain once a week where it became a norm. I call it kind of as other people have in the past, the human layer, Mm. like the human layer. Like if you can't take your shoes off, walk up such a, such a well-worn trail, such as Sinitas, it's technical. Mm -hmm. For example, those who don't know Sinitas, right? It's a technical mile climb up or kilometer and a half, whatever. And, and right, but it's worn. So you can actually decide where to put your foot every time and mm-hmm. be pretty soft on a temperate day. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's actually where you put your foot. You got to put it on stuff that isn't perfectly, perfectly square, but is going to actually feel good. Like you're putting your foot on a tennis ball that you've been prescribed perhaps or a lacrosse ball or, or something else that might make your feet feel good. It actually would mm-hmm. if you understood that that's what it was going to give you. Plus all the other mobility and stability and like, freedom that one hike if that was normal in people's lives i keep thinking a hike like that in a day if they had access to something that natural for 30 to an hour once a week yep. that became a norm wow i yep. that would take nothing away it would add so much as far as i'm concerned and that's that's kind of that wanting to relate this freedom not just to be something you wait to have but that i you really can have while you're at the highest level of performance mm-hmm. and i think it would help i i agree i agree i you know it's a knowing what i know now kind of discussion Right. And I think this is an interesting philosophical point, you know, like Tim Ferriss always asks his guests, you know, what could you, what would you go back and tell your, your 20 year old self now, if you could, you know, he'll say that to a Mm -hmm. 35 year old, for example, or if they're 50, he'll say, you know, your 30 year old self. And, and I think that's a really interesting discussion, but I also want to recognize that, you know, everyone's having their journey and everyone's learning at the rate they're learning. And, and, you know, I had people who maybe attempted to give me advice or mentor me when I was 18. And I basically told them to go to the moon. I was way too much of a headstrong, know it all, you know, I'm going to conquer this mountain on my own type of mentality. So granted, if I could, if it was me and I came back in a time machine, you know, like, like Biff did in back to the future or whatever. And I told myself like, dude, pay attention to this. You know, like I want you once a week to commit to walking up Sinitas with bare feet or the most minimal shoes possible. This will improve your long-term function. I absolutely agree that that would have been a good move. That said, um, I think that's, it's a philosophical exercise. I don't, I, I, what I'm saying is I think everyone has their journey and they are all learning it at the perfect rate. And now I have gone through all those lumps, those 30 years of racing and 
getting my teeth kicked in and learning all the hard lessons about maintaining my own mobility and, and about how poor my foot function was. I've learned all those lessons the hard way. And, mm. you know, the broken healer is one of the best healers to help other people. Mm-hmm. And, and so I feel like in a way, if I could magically bypass some of that or learn that in advance, maybe it wouldn't have, the lesson wouldn't have hit, impacted me as, as effectively. Maybe I wouldn't be as good at sitting down with a client and looking them in the eye and saying, man, you've got really strong quads, hamstrings, and glutes, but your Achilles mobility is garbage and your ankle stability is like a one out of 10. You need to work on this. And it's not only to be a better bike racer, but it's to be a better human. And being a human is the first priority before you can worry about being a good bike racer. So guess what? Here's your Vibrams. Start with these, start with walks around the block, progress from there. Uh, To add to that, to like be a human, like I thought immediately of the deep squat. Yes. The squat. We just have to look at that. It's something that costs no more time, no more energy. No, I shouldn't say time or trying to think of what you have to invest to get so much out, right? So you don't have to need equipment. You don't need anything. This idea that you could just be in the hip mobility, knee mobility, low back mobility, function ultimately, uh, ankle and foot and everything in one. And we only can't do it today. Too much of us cannot do it because we stopped doing it and sitting in chairs when we went to preschool and kindergarten and then work. So that's, mm-hmm. that's, I don't want to be in a whole movement specialist talking about squats, but I relate to what we were just saying. If one wants a, a quick glimpse, if, if, if you do not have a deep squat easily, something you're working on, I'm going to drill the point home right now Mm -hmm. that that alone is a respect for our human nature. It is a resting position. It is an, as it's a resting position when it gets easy for you, it's easy to maintain. So it should be like, like good habits are just as easy as bad habits. uh, Someone once said Mm. it's, it's like if, if part of your energy, anyone energy who has any inclination to be working on their health, wellness, and human performance at any level is not spending some time making that be and a finite amount of time making that be mm-hmm. uh, natural and normal I, I would tell you something something severely missing from what you think is gonna like doing exactly what you said Colby which is to work on that ankle mobility that's because it's going to help you yep. I wouldn't even relate that to my performance as an athlete in any one of these sports I want to do I would say if you're not, it's not on your mind to completely respect what the human body needs to be a human and be in its resting positions well, that's going to keep you well. I would say that on the whole, like that's a, that's a really good snapshot into function, just that deep. And we're talking about a third world squat, right? Is kind of how Kelly Starrett would phrase it, right? The ability to be in that resting position with your feet on the floor and just be in a deep squat right? Support your own body weight without falling over, without, um, falling backwards. Right. A hundred, hundred percent. Just be yeah. easy. And now it's, I'm speaking from a point of view where I did not have one until I realized it's importance. So yeah. it's not like, like you talk about the journey, right? So I, I definitely was not someone who had it. I was a normal human who didn't even think about it and didn't go into that position. Yep. Um, for so many reasons, a lot of my last six, seven years has been just observation of kids and then doing what they do very organically I put things on the floor so I have to get them up or I put my computer on the floor right I sleep on the floor, like I told you so this idea of it even being referred to as a third world squat or needing a label at all 
or even thinking it's a genetic component. I've heard one of my top highest level mover, fre teacher, friends, um, even refer to it as genetic, this ability to do this, this, this squat that every one of you had a child do all day long. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I, I, re I really, really want to um, evolve this concept into it being a thing that's at the very human layer, what we can do that is uh, the highest bang for our buck if we talk about what we need to invest in time and money as a human uh, health healthy person and the highest level human performer mm -hmm. um, part of that would be just this respect for this human resting position that we have that only becomes not comfortable and not easy because we start to sit in chairs period and you know that becomes pretty preschool and kindergarten age five when luckily they're still moving for quite a while so when they when we get older, we kind of miss the point when you all of a sudden can't do it because you don't ever need to do it to even check on it, right? When you're nine or 10 or 11 or 12, and by the time you hear it's important, it's a lot longer later than that. Yep. So this idea of, yeah. So on that note, for, for the relatability of this and respectability of this deep squat position, um, to have it be a finite amount of time i really recommend and hope to inspire that it be a finite amount of time that it can go like it was for me from something i could not do when i realized its importance to something i can do easily and basically i i just could do more and more and more meaning i could do more of it i could get up and down out of it faster it just gave it keeps giving me more and more and more so your basic ability to squat your butt down and keep your feet on the floor mm -hmm. um, in any way whatsoever is such a bank for your buck as far as this I, I mentioned ankle mobility knee hip the length of your tissues your low back rounding over and lengthening as well or opening up and getting longer um, through your hip all aspects of your hip all that to say um, we, we do other things. We pay high level people to take us through stretching, uh, right? Massage, uh, go through classes to teach us how to stretch. Like if you could take one example of something that is so simple and natural is the deep squat that gives us all those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I recommend, uh, I was, I was kind of asking where you are on that with, yep. with athletes and where we could go with that to inspire more to realize what it could give us and and one thing i don't even not to relate back to you could say they're only going to think it's important if it helps performance mm -hmm. i want to also say the first thing we could do is respect it for respecting you as a human being and yeah. life on this earth yes. right yes let's first need to respect our life as a human and the fact that we're going to give life get life be a mover and a shaker and be able to get on and off the floor our whole life example respect that first and what we need to feed nutritionally like katie bowman says nutritious movement uh to our body just to have the basic level of what it means to be a human and then really utilize that to then be our highest level of human performance so that's my mm. shift i think in perspective of the something as simple as a squat i think that's that's great it's really powerful and you know i've been thinking about this in the last couple of weeks for some reason this has been coming to my head when i've just been moving around my own house and you know we have so many opportunities to move in better ways even in daily life like the silliest examples but you know when i'm when I'm doing dishes, I used to have a habit of, for some reason, popping my hips forward and kind of leaning against the counter. And what is that? That's standing in a sway back position. Like I don't need to stand that way for 20 minutes every day. That's not gonna, so now I've been grounding in my heels and trying to stand a little more, you know, 
make myself long through the crown of my head. And also, likewise, we have this Tupperware drawer that's like low down and I have to get Tupperware every night to put the leftovers in or whatever. And um, we've been slowly getting rid of our plastic Tupperware and getting more glass. But anyway, side note, but it's like, am I, do I need to just bend over and lean with one arm on my thigh to get this Tupperware? No, I can, this is 10 seconds of deep squat. I can just drop right down and open the drawer and be in my deep squat and then stand up, you know, being conscious of grounding into the heels and, and keeping my weight on one foot or the other or both equally, depending on where my attention is and just try to effortlessly rise, you know, with that Tupperware. <laughs> and and yeah. it sounds silly, but these are, this is how you keep yourself strong and functional and limber. Another really goofy example that I started doing years ago is I'm still shaved my legs. I'm like, even though I don't really race my bike anymore, I can't deal with the hair. I just, I just, I'm like a human Shima Inu. I prefer to be a little tidier. So I keep my hair short and I just don't really like body hair very much. So I shave my, my legs and you know, I'm still riding some whatever. And so when I shave in the shower, um, I'll stand on one foot and I'll shave the other leg while I'm standing on that foot the whole time. Now, mm. before anyone goes and does this, showers are slippery, so don't take yourself out. But it takes, you know, I don't know how long it takes. I don't time it, I don't care. But but by the time I'm done shaving my one leg with the leg in the air, people are gonna think I'm crazy for saying this, but that's okay. By the time I'm done with that, like all my stabilizers, my ankle, my, you know, glute meat, all my little hip, you know, external and internal rotators are all firing and a little bit burny by the time I'm done with that leg. And then I put that leg down and do the other side. And it just has conditioned me to be a little more stable because I, after 30 years of bike racing, my ankle stability was crap too. You know, when you're pedaling around in carbon fiber flippers, basically, it destroys your foot and ankle stability and strength. It, mm. it takes away all those little muscles to, to have a strong arch that's responsive and capable of, of dealing with some load. And I want to bring that yeah. back. I want to be able to walk barefoot and do these things. So, all right, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift a little, yeah, yes. uh, tail end of that. It, it destroys. So, mm. foot in foot coffins, bike shoes, it destroys. Mm -hmm. I want to add something to 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 enliven the the foot and and things, which is to say, things what destroys or put put it this way, just let's die is our not feeding the articulations, the, the 26 bones, 33 joints, for example, in the foot, right? Mm -hmm. If we don't feed it movement, mobility, rocks, different things to, 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 to play with, it just dies. So, and the, the shoe just doesn't, doesn't give it mm -hmm. anything. So it doesn't actually destroy it. Right. So there's, there's no destroying. There's actually just That's dying. A good point. That's a good point. If you don't use it, you lose it. <laughs> Correct. That, it's yeah. that simple. Yeah. So in this day and age, we can talk all day long about what a better cycling shoe might look like and be like, but mm. where you can help that, like I, I actually did and grew two sizes in my cycle shoes from 40.5 to 42. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't use all the length, but I needed a wider shoe. Mm -hmm. uh, it was to feed my feet. So they were stronger, more awesome feet. And the shoe, I used to think like I had to whatever, well, put your foot in the shoe and it will just be a better performer in that shoe, which may not be perfect. Right. Mm -hmm. I, so the point is let's look at those in two ways. Not that our shoes are destroying our feet, not high heels. No, not any shoe you can put on your foot. It's two things. It's that you could feed your feet separately and just say, sorry, feet got to go in the shoes right now for yeah. five or hours. 
Um, but you could also apologize them to them when you take them out. Like they are living beings who eat, who had to be in a straitjacket for five hours. And <laughs> yep, so, yep. right. Or two hours yeah. or not even need the protection. For example, in your home trainer, right. We talked about this, a connection to your foot should not also mean that it can't just be free and open air needs absolutely no protection. So to think a shoe is also protection in many of our training hours is kind of crazy because mm -hmm. we're not always out on the road. Mm -hmm. So much of it could be indoors. So yeah, that, that point alone, let's feed our feet, let's apologize to it and use the tools that are available. Let's make better tools, which would be, for example, the, the, the foot better shoes mm -hmm. and, um, and just treat it as a living being as it is, as well as everybody part that we have as well. So yep. making more sense, let's shift the paradigm. That's a great, that's a great point. Um, you know, I think me using the term destroy is, is we'll say gratuitous adjective. Uh, <laughs> use um i i'm i'm prone to the dramatic at times to make a point yeah it's just that shoes can't we got we, we got to take a responsibility on ourselves i did not feed my feet versus something else yes did that to my yeah, feet right i guess that that's a simple point there that's a yeah. that's take a some responsibility yep that's a powerful distinction so what in your opinion what does a strong healthy foot look like tell us about how your feet have changed and, and what that, how the function of your feet has changed and, and how should people's feet be able to move through the world? I mean, we've talked about, you know, you told me that the last time you were in Boulder, I believe, or sometime recently, you ran up Sinitas with bare feet. Now, again, to paint the picture for those who aren't local, it's, I think it's a thousand foot vertical gain climb on a, the ridge of a mountain. And this is like, I mean, it's a trail. It's all rocks and sand and big steps and lumpy pointy things that will, you know, puncture your foot if you're not careful. So when you're doing these types of activities, you've got to be very, what I love about it is you've got to be so conscious of your weight and your foot strike and your placement. It just bring it, it magnifies the connection with nature because if you don't really pay attention to where you're putting the foot down every single time, you could quite easily hurt yourself, right? So will you unpack that for us a little bit? What, sure. what, what does a healthy foot look like? Yeah, I think as I love to shift perspectives, I would love to start this part of the, part of the conversation in mm -hmm. terms of everyone who's listening to put the, the foot and nature as the default thinking right now. Mm -hmm. So in terms of if we put the foot first, instead of think of the foot in terms of what it can or can't do or what footwear it needs to do what it does or what it looks like today and what it should look like. Let's just go back to the idea of, of ba babies. It's real simple. What, what does a baby foot look like? We all know they all look the same uh, for the most part, pretty much longer, but not as not always the toes widest and nice and nice and wiggly. And then um, from there, look at what, what they do. Babies, if left by themselves, this is a really key point. They would go, if we didn't put shoes on them, they would fall a lot more places and mm -hmm. never think twice, never think to put a shoe on until when? Until it was a little too hot. And mm -hmm. then they might make a noise and then you might say, oh shoot, it's hot. We might need to do something or it's too cold too or cold. it's this or, yeah. right? But they're or too cold, but they're gonna run in that snow way for a while before that's a problem. This is not going to be a problem right away, right? Mm -hmm. And this studies are showing nature exposure and all the things. It's it's actually good for us, right? To have these temperature changing, regulating things happen for the body and feet are temperature um, are regular thermal regulators as well. This this input we get from that, so it would it definitely affects our whole body. 
So in terms of look at that wide, stable base of support that these babies have. Um, and then from there, the only reason the foot doesn't end up looking that way, if you look at the different worlds and who wears what shoes in different parts of the world, um, it's easy to see, right? That what, why that foot feet in left in their natural, natural state are these wide bases of support with the toe, this quite a spade shape, even if they're narrower, they're still got this spade shape, right? If, mm -hmm. if the toes are left to grow outward, like flowering, beautiful uh, petals that they could be versus mm -hmm. be tucked in uh, with shoes, uh, which happens, unfortunately, these days, the best I hear sometimes, oh, I was barefoot till I was one. But as soon as the foot gets set on the ground to walk yeah. or before we put shoes on, yeah. this isn't, this is old news, I hope for most people. Let's fast forward to mm -hmm. me and then uh, the, just the fact of relating that stable wide base of support to the pedal push and the power you want to have on the bike today. Mm -hmm. So my journey into understanding this was, uh, was to, to have issues with my right side, my right leg. And this was in 06, 07. So this was after I became this like awesome machine, uninjured person. I took some time off. When I came back, it was about a year. When I came back, I had issues again. Wow, because I did not have, I was, I told you I was a machine just two the year before. And I was like, what happened? Well, turns out for me, for example, I'm a righty. So all this experience I have made me realize that I put so much more weight on my left foot than my right foot in doing a lot of things, mm -hmm. right? Writing with my right hand, I put my weight on my left butt cheek in my chair. I put my weight on my left foot when I'm sweeping a broom. And that all relates to, to how we, to the fact that my right leg then had these weak link issues. One of my be best coaches later looked at me and when he was saw, saw that my one hip was hiked, my right hip was hiked when I was in standing. And this was the hip, the leg that was like bothering me over my knee again. And just my quad wasn't firing the way it should. He made me put more weight on my right foot. Mm -hmm. My hips kind of settled. And he said, well, and this is key. I don't need to fix you. I need to be stronger. I simply had using my right leg, hence it, 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 that's a key point. I don't have to fix you. I need to make you stronger. Yep. Relate that to the foot. Uh, I just need to, I needed to use it more. So what happened when I noticed in the shower one day for myself, when my right leg wasn't working and I was just, I was, I'm a thinker. So I was thinking, what still is the thing? They were having me squeeze my quad, activate my glutes. Guys, I'm like, my glutes are great. My quad is great. Mm -hmm. I'm still wearing shoes in the gym at this point. Right. Mm -hmm. Finally, one day in the shower, I looked down and noticed after a swim workout one time in the shower that my right foot and big toe were a lot smaller than my left. And I looked closer and I looked closer and I saw that the, that white, that skin that's under your arch. Well, not many people are going to relate to this, but that, that doesn't touch the ground on yep. the arch yep. was, was continuing right up under my big toe where my fatty padding started only after my big toe. So I just noticed things like that, where, that I was missing fatty padding, which meant that that big toe had not hit the ground in that year that I had off like year and a half. I was just being a normal person, probably walking on the outside of my foot. Right. Yep. Yep. So I wasn't using that big toe. And that's a really big deal. When you talk about anything, power production, walking gracefully for the rest of your life, everything. Yep. And that's the one I started to take my shoes off in the gym. And little by little, it started to change. I got started to use my feet more. I thought, I'll oh, just see what it's like to go on a trail and run. I just started to organically do more with my feet. I just, I I started to use my feet more and more. And that was over years. Uh, that was 2008. I started 2011, for example, three years later, my first pair of fighters absolutely had some feet aches on one foot, actually, than the other, more than the other when I had that. Realizing, why does one foot ache and not the other? 
oh, it's not the footwear, it's my feet in the footwear. What do I have to do to make them awesome? Fast forward to 2015, when I told you I chopped up my last pair of shoes I was wearing because I grew, <laughs> you asked me what changed. I grew, I grew out of all of my shoes, yep. right? Uh, they, if I, they were like, I just did, I couldn't fit in them anymore. So your feet, your foot, because it's muscles. I told you, you have, uh, there's like 26 muscles or 56 total muscles that are even just attached to your toes, let alone, yeah. there's so many muscles in your foot. So when you're them more, you have stronger, denser, this, this super structure that we have as a body has this dense, strong base of support. And it started to be like that. Those, you can imagine those feet. It's the feet that get made fun of. Are you kidding me? I make fun of the feet that look on this super tall, tall person or tall guy. And like, they're just stuck in shoes down. They're all like, not as big as it needs to be for your body. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I start to, you start to shift that focus. Um, and so here I was, my feet grew out and the last pair of shoes I was wearing was my cycle shoes. I was a mountain bike in 2015 in Costa Rica and I was, didn't have to wear shoes the whole season, but my cycle shoes didn't think twice about it. And then finally I was up in British Columbia in Squamish mountain biking, epic, my, my like heaven for me. Mm -hmm. And I still realized that when I cut my toes out of my mountain bike shoes and slipped my toe under the Velcro part to keep it on my foot, but I had cut off the toes, I realized my foot nuzzled right into that, that, that sole of the shoe, which was still pointy where my toes had, had, you know, if you take out your liner, you can see your toes kind of caved inward and pushed on the, yep. on the liner. Yep. Mine still did that. Even though I had these really fat wide feet, it was crazy. Interesting. And that was with the toes cut off. Uh -huh. Yeah. My toes were cut off a bit, but I thought, Oh, my toes will just spill over the sole and they they'll just be on the edge. No, yeah. I, they didn't. <laughs> And I didn't even know it for hours and hours on that bike those those months. And I said, screw that. That's when I cut off bottom as well with my saw. I just hacksawed it off. And I still had um, the, the shoe was, I was still able to push midfoot, right? So no big deal. I just needed some protection for my toes. Yeah. So when we talk about building a shoe, yes. all I want is to continue out that base of support so that it's just like my toe, like, a spade shade the wide breadth of the toes. That's all and flat. So yes. that gives you an idea of 2015. And I have been zero tolerance for shoes ever since. And what does that look like for me today? It means that I don't, I, I default to feet. So I get up and I go out the door or I go about my day, luckily. And then you think, oh shoot, just like gloves. Think about gloves. Mm -hmm. You say, oh, I got to wear gloves today. You don't automatically put on gloves. You wouldn't, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't type on your computer, your phone. You couldn't zip up your jacket. You couldn't, right? Like mm -hmm. braid your hair, you, right? You wouldn't put, and that's as much of our sensory organ, our, our feet are meant to send us 70% of our ability to move in space and actually yes. connect our body to what we do. Our feet of our sensory organs are meant to give us 70% of that information mm. and that stable base of support. So it's not only just to relate back also to your cycling, like people here, it's, it's like the first thing I wanted to do was to realize for, I didn't even know, realize it was a sensory organ until much later till I was already writing my website about feet. I was just an athlete who realized that when I took my, my shoes off in the gym, um, uh, they were just getting wider and, and wider, like great, right? Like mm -hmm. awesome. I can push the pedal down more. I can push my squat jumps more, my single leg squat jumps. I told you one day, I think in our conversation that I, I was in about 2011, 12-ish, I was still racing Xterra. And I remember doing a box jump preparing for the worlds and my foot up on the box. And I was jumping up like in the split stance, jumps up like I had done 
since 04. So we're going on 10 years of me doing this exercise mm-hmm. really powerfully, really like robotically in a good way, like mechanically, like boom, power, up, down, up, down. And um, I was going higher in the air. I, I've like Michael Jordan, like hovers a bit, you know, I yeah. just knew that I was higher in the air. And I couldn't, at first I was like, I observed it. I was aware of it, but I didn't know why. I thought maybe it's because I, I understand the movement more. I respect it more. I know it's, no, I realized it was my, the wide breadth of the foot that was actually a willing and awesome participant in yeah. not only to, the base to push from, but to actually push with me from. It, it was crazy. Mm. And if that doesn't give you an example of a, what we do on the bike every day, right? That all bike pedaling is, is a hip flexion, hip extension. Yeah. No, I shouldn't say hip. I should say just a triple, triple extension and flexion, right? From the hip and down Yes. and um, onto that basis, which is the pedal. And so that's a simple movement that just has to repeat strongly and to take out 33 articulations times two of muscles attached and ligaments attached to their relationship to our power to push. So that was my first original inspiration. And that's when I couldn't wear the shoes like that anymore. And why I now have added in sensory input, texture, nature, but this was all before my journey into nature, you know? Yeah. Um, and now, like you talked about Sanitas, I just, I crave it. I, I, I crave it. Yeah. I do too. So you, you I do too. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So what's, you have a similar experience. How, how's that going for you? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm exploring that path, you know, I'm doing Tai Chi in my yard, uh, some nights and then some days, some mornings I did it this morning in my yard and it's always bare feet. It's walking on the grass and, and just being in the house more often with bare feet and walking the dog with bare feet. Um, and then there are times where I'll go up. I live basically at the bottom of this trail, Sanitas, more or less. I live on, um, a street that I can go straight up the end of my street to a cul-de-sac and then I'm right up the, the goat path side of Sanitas, which is pretty much it's a very vertical, steep, technical kind of hike. And I'll do Vibrams and then I'll take them off and I'll walk for a few minutes with bare feet. So I'm in the process of sort of waking up my feet to be able to handle that kind of load. Um, I, I'm pretty sure if I went and ran Sunitas with bare feet, I'd hurt myself. So I'm not quite there yet, but I'm also, I think I'm in a similar path uh, as far as sort of rejection of my cycling shoes that were for years and years of my racing and riding have worked for me. And especially last year, I just, you know, over years, I've always started, like I've had got these really pointy sort of almost like um, bony metatarsal heads. Like my fifth metatarsal head and my first are just like, they're like little horns on the top of my feet and they just poke up into the uppers of shoes. And so for me, it started there. uh, And also the outer corner of my big toe, those were problem areas for me because that big toe is always getting smashed by our shoes that are like, basically most cycling shoes in my opinion like like most things in cycling they're just carryovers from ancient technology or not even technology i don't even know if that's the right word they're just ancient like old school cycling shoes were you know wooden soles with leather uppers and what people did what riders did i'm talking 40 50 60 years ago they would buy these shoes like two sizes too small barely get their foot into them and then ride them for 2000 kilometers you know, in the little ring and get snowed on and rained on. And then that leather upper would slowly conform to the shape of the foot and grow and, and widen probably. And there was probably some on both ends. The foot probably conformed to the upper, but the upper probably also conformed to the shoes. Well, fast forward to 1990, 95, everybody wants things to be lighter and stiffer. So now we have carbon fiber soles that are stiffer and we have uppers that are made of material that are primarily non-stretch. People want, you know, all they want is efficiency. 
even if it's the expense of things they don't quite understand. And so they're making shoes with uppers that are just so rigid. They've got these big rigid straps. They've got these uppers that are Dyneema and all these fabrics that are amazing and good technology, but they make the whole upper out of this fabric. And so it's confining to the foot. And But people are still buying their shoes like two sizes too small. I honestly believe that. And it's just accepted. It's like, this is a really old holdover from cycling as well. Like, you know, I think 30, 40, 50 years ago, cycling was such a hard man and hard woman sport. Like part of cycling was going out and just getting the beat down. Like you just trained in January and it was cold and your ass hurt and your legs hurt and your lungs hurt and your neck hurt. Well, did your, and your feet hurt. Well, your feet didn't hurt because cycling hurts your feet. Your feet hurt because your shoes oh. were two size too small. Your ass didn't hurt because you were sitting on a bike, you were sitting on a saddle that was ancient, old, crappy technology that was jamming you in the perineum. Your arms and shoulders hurt because handlebars are not remotely ergonomic. Your neck hurt because yeah, you're you're in a hunched over position and your neck muscles have to get stronger to hold the weight of your head and your helmet, okay. Your legs hurt because you're riding your bike for thousands of kilometers, okay, that's part of the sport, right? But we didn't used to differentiate those types of pain and discomfort. Now we've got saddles that are way ahead of where they were back then. You know, we, we can be done with the Concorde and the flight and all these ancient saddles that, that destroy people's sexual function and blood flow. <laughs> Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. and, and now we're finally maybe approaching a modicum of light in the world of shoes where some people are thinking out of the box. And I spoke about some of the shoes that are thinking that way and some of the manufacturers are starting to wake up to the fact that most shoes have too wide of a heel cup and way too narrow of a forefoot not enough room in the toe box as a start what people haven't really figured out yet is there's just this holdover of heels heel rise and toe spring built into most last that is just it's just useless crap to be blunt like that just needs to go away there is no reason at all why the platform of a cycling shoe should be anything other than pancake flat and so we're just we're just dealing with it because it's what's on the market except for a very very small exception of shoes that have kind of or custom shoes that have started to figure this out people and athletes and coaches and even biomechanists and fitters not quite maybe understanding and i'm speaking with a broad brush here there are brilliant people in all these fields who figure things out. But on the whole, I would say the culture of cycling is all about faster, lighter, stiffer. And it's not necessarily, there's no real like respect for the function of a human body. And biomechanically cycling is in the freaking stone ages. Oh. Like there's still fitters to this day. And I spoke about this on my podcast with Charlie Merrill, who are coaching clients to pedal with their knees, grazing the top tube intentionally. Like encouraging internal rotation, pronation, and medial collapse. I mean, do you want a lifetime of IT band problems and back problems and breathing dysfunction and all kinds of other things? Sure, that's a great piece of advice, but the biomechanical implications of that, let alone the energetic implications are pretty profound, but people are just clueless to them. And it doesn't mean high level athletes have not succeeded using that model. We don't know what they're battling on the side, but yeah. so it's um, cycling man, cycling's just, you know, finally things are starting to, we have people like Charlie Merrill who is a cyclist and he's so clued in on how the body can function so optimally. And he helps us educate people into that world. And you're Jesse, you're way ahead of the curve in terms of in particular athletes who have functioned at a high level and have put together all these dots and had all these intuitions and then become a teacher.
I can't tell you how refresh, refreshing it is to hear a, a someone so heavily and deep in the cycling world talk about a pancake flat sole for a cycling shoe. Mm. I mean, it's not rocket science. We're not trying to build a spaceship. All we want, and all I've been like, my first letter I wrote was to specialize in 2010, December. When it, it was like an epiphany, I'm like, yep. I get it. This is all we need. We just need this. Mm -hmm. And this is, that is not the excuse. And so if I could go so far as to say, I never knew where it would begin. Would it begin from when I created my website, Feet Freaks, to, to say like, let's increase this demand. If all of us are going, we want this, then they would make it. Mm -hmm. Then I tried to attack the, 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 the makers, you know, these, the big bike companies and say like, guys, like, let's do it. And I want everyone to know what they say if they don't know yet. I think this is very important to have this transparency. And this is like a dream of mine, just so you know, Colby, if anyone can listen to this in this world and say like, where do we begin if more people understood where our gaps are? Yes. The companies will say, if we create something new, it's gonna be for a small amount of people, which absolutely sure it is in the beginning, but that's how it begins, right? Somebody's gotta, but, but yeah. the truth is there with shoes, right? The truth is there. Like 80%, the people who follow everybody from the top pros need to do this. So there was all these players. Is it the athlete that has to demand that they want that better for their foot? And then mm -hmm. they also educate others. Is it the coaches that are like, the, or like the, the main players in the field that are like, hey, bike companies, we're developing with you. We want this because we won't, we need it. Mm -hmm. Or is it the bike companies that say, we have this new, want it. You know, because it's not not going to be, or is it going to be the eighty percent of people who follow everybody else and are just like, we want this shoe, but I don't think so. So who's going to step up? And right. I tell you what the companies say, and I won't name names, but they're like, hey, if we make a shoe um, that is only that much of our budget, we can't count on making more money from that, and we got to put another person on or an yeah. advertising and marketing to actually educate people on why they'd even want that shoe in the first place. It costs that much more money. No way, we can't do it. All yeah. about economics and money. So I don't know where the tipping point let's mm. put it malcolm gladwelly is gonna be <laughs> yeah. this just truth just happens so i am like i yeah. said colby it's refreshing because you reach people you're in that world and um i also know these high level people in the cycling world and stumped me this whole time so one more time we can say it maybe we'll get somewhere um yes and do our part agreed agreed and i'll say um without going down a wormhole of hypothesis but i you know i've been percolating on a project like this for many years and I have some relationships. I have some contacts. We'll see what happens, you know, hopefully. Um, yeah. But I, I don't want to let this die. It's it's like the more I speak to you, um, the more I speak to other people, the more I have my own experiences where I'm like, man, this shoe, there are a lot of nice things about this shoe or that shoe that I'm riding. I've got a garage full of shoes and they've all been butchered and dremeled and smashed out and, and manipulated and stuff to make them work around my feet. But the more I do that, the more I'm like, this is not the product that needs to be on the market. So... I don't know what the solution is yet, but uh, I'd say we just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and getting the word out, and and then, then the right thing will fall into place, you know, kind of like has happened with me in the project with the Wave Bar, which is also a yeah. much more ergonomically minded handlebar, which I'm so happy that came. I mean, that design basically was in my head for over a decade, and then it finally happened in physical reality thanks to Rick and the crew at Coefficient, and that is just a super cool product. So now they're all on my bikes, and... There's no going back. I mean, there's some stuff you can't unsee. It's like, whoop, nope, sorry. Moving forward. So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Cool. And we've sold just just we've sold I told you I've sold these shoes already in theory, right? People want them. When they 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 yes. get it. People do get People it. People get it. So 
let's just keep this going. It's definitely more than 2016 when I launched Street Freaks or 15. Yeah. So it's more. Mm-hmm. Let's just keep it going. Yeah. So thanks for sharing sharing that, everybody, yeah. and everybody who's listening to these forward-thinking humans on the planet. Awesome. <laughs> um, so, Jesse, if we can adjust a few degrees, and I would love to recap some of the conversations you and I have had recently about the energy of training or the the balance between yin and yang or or the old school mentality of you know failure at the last rep kind of the elite athletes mentality of always keeping up and smashing thyself and sort of walking around in a haze of cortisol and adrenaline and and Mm. maybe if we if you would share with the audience some of your comments and philosophies on on training in that respect we're going back to 2004 i already mentioned Mm -hmm. but i what i didn't mention to you was that I was so broken in December of 2003. Well, no, put it this way. I actually wasn't broken because I respected the body enough to realize that if I did any more, I was going to be broken, which meant that I thought I had, you know, I had pain on my right side of my knee. That was my bad side. Now it was showing up on my left side, right? The place I stress fractured my back on my right side two years before was like, I was feeling that pressure when I stood on one leg, just standing on one leg. I felt the pressure in that L5 vertebrae on my left side, my good side. And I thought, wow, I can't, I can't train for the Olympic trials, which was coming in April, 2004. So if you can, I, I think it helps to paint the picture that in December, 2003, I quit the sport and and, I, and respectfully so, to respect the body. I, I it was a dream of mine to go to the Olympic trials, but I, I, I was doing everything. You ask again if I was doing anything different than everybody else and not hugely different, but I just knew that I could touch my toes better than anyone I knew. I did some yoga back then that the athletes were doing. And I thought I, I exhausted everything I, I knew in December, 2003 to say like, I cannot, if I do any more of what I know to train, I'm gonna hurt myself more. And luckily I was just, a human who wouldn't do that and respectfully and calmly and peacefully said, I'm, I stopped. And the yeah. answer to that was crazy when you give in to that, because that was December in January, 2004 was the inaugural rock and roll Arizona marathon. Mm-hmm. I was working for the company at the time. And if I had been training for the Olympic trials, I absolutely would not have gone to work that race. I would have been training, right. but they had given me so much support as a sponsor and a, and a friend throughout my career up to that point. As, a, as, a, as being an employee of that company, that I, I, I said, no, you need me there. You need, I'm one of your key employees. I'm going. And they didn't really understand what was going through my head. But I said, no, I'm going because I'm not training. So I went. And that's why I met Athletes Performance, now Exos, mm-hmm. teamexos.com, for example. It's just a high-performance uh, elite athlete uh, training. At that time, they had a facility in Arizona that was training high-level ball players, uh, football and baseball players preseason. Their high season was January, February. Before the seasons, I showed up January. Um, and my, it worked out to go there. And, and to paint a picture, what that meant was I got support from them who wanted the experiment to work with a triathlete instead of a pro ball player. And my boss actually covered the rest of the costs. It was not cheap to go to this elite athlete training center. Mm-hmm. And what that looked like immediately was it was the first time I was movement screened versus just a VO2 max test. Again, does for maybe nothing new now, but yeah. movement screened, VO2 max test, and and my training, luckily I was at ground zero. It takes apparently getting to ground zero in some way and having an open mind mm-hmm. to then my training, they accepted working with me and what that looked like in a week. And all y'all know what my training as a triathlete might've looked like before, swim, bike and run almost every day. Yep. Some of it's smart for sure, but like basic, yeah. And, and, and some really good people around me, but still just that. And so what it became was t- training days were four days a week, Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, 
mm-hmm. rest and recovery, active recovery on Wednesday and, and Saturday and completely off on Sunday. And when I say rest and recovery, mm-hmm. I mean like a basic flowy movement, something at the gym, rolling out, have a massage, like not mm-hmm. something working out on Wednesdays. And so really just two, four work days. Um, and that meant a movement session, hour and a half of movement, an hour and a, in the morning, hour and a half of strength, and then only 20 to 30 minutes of energy systems development, which would have otherwise been cardio on either the treadmill, the bike, or like the Versa climber or something. And that movement session, for example, was starting to be, it was med balls, was uh, fast feet, was sled pulling per- perfectly in your good running form. It might've been running drills, like basically everything without heavy weights. And the, the strength stuff was also very like basic in the beginning. It was the first time so many things happened, but it was just a very smart way to be strong and stable, stable and mobile, all in these dynamic and strong movements. Yeah. Four days of that. And so, yeah, right. So in between, I have to tell you, they were taking care of us with shakes and food and everything. So it was, it was heaven on earth. And that's why I do, I had this amazing laboratory like, but very real and open and organic and fun place to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, changed everything within one week. I know by February 14th, cause it was Valentine's day for no other reason other than I treated myself, to something. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I really remember feeling like I'm invincible. I'm invincible. Like this is the word that came to my mind only four weeks later, mm. four weeks later, I was a broken, ever going back. Couldn't even then run. I, I don't know what I've been a runner. Like what I've never run as a human again, running is such a part of my life now, just as a human element, go get my groceries down the street, like a child, like I've kid in Africa. Like <laughs> I can run anywhere, anytime, no shoes anywhere. Like it's such a human part of me now. I'm thinking at 27 or whatever year that was like, what would I, would I ever learn this? So they, again, it was within those four weeks of training that way and at that facility and doing nothing else. And I think I told you that I, I went at the end of a Tuesday once. So again, four, two full days of work. And I went to go put on my running shoes for a run yeah. after the Tuesday. Um, and my coach asked me, where are you going? And I said, for a run. And he goes, why? And Craig many times said one word to three word answers or questions like, like we're not a direct, what the hell do you think you're doing? They're just, why? And yeah. I mean, first thought was, well, good. I uh, hadn't been on a run yet for two days or right? I were like, it's Tuesday. I go on a run at 6 PM every Tuesday. Right. Uh, and I realized like, wow. And the thing I realized was that they had ta- attacked and trained every part of me. So neurologically, I was doing fast feet footwork. I was training, I would have said back then, like a football player. Wow. If you would have thought you trained like a football player, the way I would have, ex- again, expressed it back then and been a better triathlete. Yeah. What? Yeah. And um, that was crazy, right? Fast, fun work, laughing, throwing the med ball against the wall, twist, 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 but powerful, powerful perfection, like mm-hmm. amazing and, and not that many reps and changing things. And right. And like, so neurologically, certainly strength, my, my, my muscular system. And then of course my cardio system, right. Which would have been more like when I, when you got there, he wanted to train your cardio system, but in relation to your strength or your power or your speed or your power, in other words, in relation to your neurological system or your strength or muscular system, right? Mm -hmm. Like they had to work together. It wasn't just like, let's beat your cardio system to death or let's beat your, or think that you're going to get all of that just by doing, just by riding your bike. You're not going to tax your nervous system as the level of a a lead athlete or even as a human, you're not going to tax your muscular system to the level that you really could. And you're not going to task your, um, even your cardio system. Um, unless you're doing really those short, hard reps, which actually challenge you, challenge you to be better and then use it to go longer. You know what I'm getting at? Like, yes. it's just so smart in these short, short intervals. 
in, in which case that was the beginnings of, to tell you what I tell you so much of now, imagine crushing yourself in those intervals. Many people know what that's like. But the difference was they, they would either keep me going or stop me in my cardio system development. Um, for example, he'd tell me I was doing three sets of something and I would, I trusted him and he, he was right there with me. I mean, it was super helpful to have a coach there, obviously. I'm not passing that by, but mm -hmm. he would just like, I would kill myself. And then I think I was done. And he goes, okay, another, another set. I said, you told me four sets. <laughs> and he said, you're still recovering though. No. Whereas before, if I went on a long ride or something that had less precision in my training and much more time involved, I also attacked and, and depleted those systems to the level of like come, wanting to come home, the usual, get the smoothie, not even have the energy to make the smoothie, have to make the smoothie, have to do the rolling out, just want to lay there, but like for hours, you know, afterwards, like just depleted versus just like spring boing. So <laughs> they're training in those, right? Like the, just those, those alone, that movement sessions, the strength sessions, I worked my butt off but by the time you had a break and like to recover, not like. There was no even like soreness at that point too, right? It was just a smart way to get all these trained and get feel fresh all the time, mm. like all the time. When you also put in the Wednesday and the Saturday as basically almost nothing and a Sunday off and be so awesome because Monday you came and you tore up those numbers that you had last yep. week. Yep. You, you know what that's like. So like, what do we have to do to absolutely every Monday, every Tuesday, see a significant change hmm. and have had fun the whole time doing it. I mean, fun, meaning you love to feel the pain the, and I mean the pain of the, the change, not the pain of the depletion, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So if I could just say it was a much more movement based, precise, purposeful, but like you, they just got it. They worked all the systems together. And I have, I, all I can say is that is what changed my life. I had other people walk in those doors from my sport at the time and literally say two things. Wow, this is hoity. And like it costs a, like, or like what you ever do within these four walls to be a better triathlete and leave. Uh -huh. Or it's hoity toity because it was state of the art. It looked state of the art. And it was. I, I need much less of that now in my performance training life and nature than yeah. I needed then. I'm very aware of that. Yeah. But at the same time, to think it was hoity toity, to think you're going to spend 10 grand on a bike, but not spend 10 grand on what these guys would change life and your complete like paradigm shift. And I always said it was so good. I thanked Mark Verstegen, hmm. the, the, the founder, to, to, to what he taught me for my sport and my career, but more so what he taught me for life. I was so aware so quickly that he changed my entire life. And wow. he has no idea the ripple effects still to this day because he doesn't, he hasn't lived with me for 10 years, for 10 years of now being away from there all style. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it was so apparent to me. Hmm. Um, and keep it relatable to all i want you to know that i had olympic trials that came in mid-april april 14th or 16th it was and i had no expectation i had my they treat they taught they taught me like i had only done what i could do up to that i had never seen it expressed i didn't know if it would help my career or not or, or my, my performance i mean i felt good doing it just made sense so when i towed the line i have to tell you the confidence that i told you they gave me part of it transpired in the beginning days olympic trials no stress because, mm -hmm. well, then it, you could have said it was because um, I had no expectation because what I really expect. I realized it was more that I was just confident I could do, um, which I knew only later. But uh, I said, when I'm in the water, this is all I was thinking. Could you imagine? I don't know what was on your mind at Olympic trials or anybody else's mind, mm -hmm. but I had learned how to lengthen my spine, how to be tall and strong, how to swim where every stroke was this long, nutritious, like, 
powerful thing versus just like move your arms over and over to get where you're going and probably do it pretty good, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I did the, the drills, not only in the pool where the, the strokes were long and strong and like lats every time. And in the gym, I was doing the same motions, but powerfully and purposely. Here I am in the swim, getting ready to dive in. And I said, all right, all you're gonna do is dive in the water, take a stroke and use all of that, that space you need to do that powerful stroke, which means right in front of your head, push the hand in and really take that the strokes you need. And if anyone gets in your way, you go into that intention harder. Yeah. In other words, you're not gonna then move your stroke, which is the powerful stroke to let their arm in or their body in. Right. I dove in that water. I did exactly that. I, I always tell people whenever I felt that arm on my arm, I pushed harder forward where I'm going. Imagine that vision. It's what I was. It's the only thing that was on my mind until, until I had some clear water. Until I was just realizing that I can't even go any harder. I'm going as or yeah harder. I was going as hard as I could, and there was no pain. Wow. That, that's the other thing they taught me, which we can talk about. I keep going on and on, but it, what it, I've taught it many times since. But it, let me finish with the story, and then about how you can, when you know you're trained right, is when you can push as hard as you can, and you're in like equilibrium basically right mm-hmm. i mean that's the point you can't break the olympic marathon at two hours and have been in pain for part that's the big example to put this in some perspective to fast forward big trials then which happened april 16th just the, what was 12 weeks after i had walked in those doors of of the training center and two things happened and i do want to say that the first one was i went to a pool guys i hadn't done a single swim workout this is so for 12 weeks i hadn't gone to a swim workout Wow. I has had been doing swimming. Yes. I, I, I don't want to mention that. Be- why? Because I knew, I, I knew what my stroke was like as swimmers do. They have these little ticks, you know, this arm does that, that arm does that. And I'd been a swimmer since I was age six and I'd seen videos of myself and sure. I, I cleaned it up. I did some drills here and there, mm-hmm. but I knew what my ticks were. And I knew I went to a regular swim workout, which as an adult, really you don't really do drills or work on technique that much. You just go and swim that I would have had the same little ticks and in the gym and in my I was doing though uh, swimming drills in a shallow pool at the training center with um, with Anita Nall ex-olympic uh, or an Olympic medalist that was my hero when I was a child I always have to mention that they were like Anita's gonna work with you on your swim and I was like my hero <laughs> so wow she uh, was such a great friend but um yeah she and I yeah, totally <laughs> we were in the pool together and she was helping me and it was all about like 25 yards just like these long lengthy reach like technical things but none of it was fun she was throwing me tennis balls i was moving in the water and these very powerful movements in the gym that were reiterating the power through each of these motions very equally both sides um all the things Mm -hmm. i get to it was in hawaii i get to the race and the the before the race the days before the race and my other coach helping me my on my triathlon stuff said you know what go to the pool and do just this basic workout two three hundreds two two hundreds two one hundreds don't think about the time just do them to do them right one was like not really sure why but okay it's a pool uh, it's what you're supposed to do right before a little bit so right and i do a 300 yard swim and easy easy like you said i touched the wall and i had never seen a time that fast in my life of wow. now 25 years of swimming that wow. I had touched the wall. 
like something so organic. Yeah. And I hadn't been to a single workout. Let's just, let me just say that. I, I was like, okay. And I'm not talking about a minute off of three minutes. It was more like, you know, instead of it being a hard three minutes, 30, it was like an easy two, three twenty. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. easy. He said yeah. easy. So I went easy. Yeah. So it's just like that. And then I, the, the other point was that start line of, of Olympic trials, what's on one's mind? I don't know what's on your mind for Olympic trials. My, but all that I knew because I could have no expectations was that I was thinking to, when I dive in the water, my body to be its best needs this space in front of my body. It needs this length under, under my body. I need to be able to do my full strokes. I said, and if anyone gets in that way of those strokes, I'm going to not give into it. I'm going to part it where I know I need to be. So when people, in some ways, when people say, is it 100% mental? Is it 95% mental? What is it? At that point, it was all mental because if I hadn't decided or known what it took to actually swim so efficiently, I mentally I had to decide to do it to make the choice to even work on the things in the gym to do it, let alone to be in that moment to decide to do it. I mean, the physical part became, I guess, just the expression of the mind, right? At that point, mm -hmm. here I am in the water. Of course, what happens, it's triathlon, dive in like a, like a dolphin and I'm swimming like that long, straight, push that hand exactly where I want to go. Mm -hmm. And when the arms come, I push straight more into my pattern. And like, like everything, like finally you, you get into a place where it evens out a bit. You kind of have your space in the, in the crowd and I can look up and, and, but you can't really tell who's around you. You know, I keep going and I was going as hard as I could at that point, which meant like, it still felt easy. I, I was going as hard as I could, but I was in this flow, I, but I, I couldn't tell who was in front of me, who was behind me. Go figure. I went as, as hard as I could, I get out of the water. Again, I felt effortless and I look around and I was in a pack faster than I ever have been in, which is a minute faster than I had ever been in wow. a triathlon. Wow. It, uh, the, 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 you know, the racers who were around me, right? Kelly, Kelly and this other, I remember who was around me. I said, okay, mm -hmm. not only I got to go out onto the, yeah, on the bike, is, that's e that was easy for me. So I was like, that's uh, it was a strength for me. So I was doing my normal thing on the bike. But in my pack was the current and only Olympic gold medalist our sport had ever seen, Virgie McMahon. Mm. And I was in her pack, no problem. And I got off the bike, and I'm running out of transition to that 10K run, shoulder to shoulder, so easily. Like, I must have never felt that way. This is so crazy to think back to. But I had I was shoulder to shoulder with Brigitte, our current Olympic gold medalist. I was, and I was, tears were streaming down my eyes. Wow. An Olympic child. Wow. Just appreciating the moment that I even got there and mm. that like i said i was gonna do when i started the sport that i said i was going to see what i was capable of in the sport you know that's what i wanted to do in the sport i wasn't there for the money my co my friends would say don't do it you know don't make it you know your job don't do it for the money i said i just want to see what i'm capable of and at that moment i i said wow i saw what was possible more so so yeah i was in tears running out of trend and uh and, and i ended up i ended up sec second alternate overall so i was fifth at that no fifth at that race and fourth at the next race and ultimately second alternate wow and the race the next race for example was it was eight weeks later and i was even stronger and even like so many more things because i ate more weeks instead of just 12 mm -hmm. and yeah i ended up fourth uh at that point so that's the biggest change just to make it a little more relatable to race wise, what that did for me, confidence wise, mentally, the body just being able to push as hard as it wants and feel no pain and, and it, it be the most that you can give. That's what they gave me. All systems were go and there was no breakdown in wow. my, yeah. in, you know, 
in my fitness, put it that way at that point, what I would have called fitness, let alone my technique, you know, people are faster runners, swimmers, bikers, but like my ability to express that myself was huge. And that's, yeah, that's such a good point, right? I mean, I feel like how many times have we seen athletes go to the line for a race, you know, especially cyclists or anyone in an endurance sport, and you know that they're hyper fit, they're, they're super well trained, but they're also chronically trained, you know, they're training so much. They're adding so much load because they're under the paradigm of more is always better. And so you don't see that fitness or that strength or that endurance be expressed because they got nervous in the last 10 days and they undercooked their taper or, or they just were too type A for the previous six months and they just nuked themselves repeatedly. And over time, their hormones did the slow decline and you know, their cortisol levels are chronically elevated and they've got all kinds of chronic glycogen depletion or maybe they're not eating enough so they're in negative energy balance or whatever. It's like, pick your poison, right? And this sounds like such a powerful paradigm shift for you because, I mean, if you were training like most of the triathletes I know and many of the elite cyclists, you were probably doing, you know, if it's run, bike, swim most days of the week, six, maybe seven days a week, that's easily you know, 16, 18, 20, maybe 24 hours a week is pretty common. And now you're at Exos, you're oh, doing yeah. four hard work days a week, which it sounds like we're around three hours tops. So that's three by four is 12 hours plus an hour of maybe mobility and rolling around tops on your two other rest days and Sunday off. So we're talking maximum 14 hours a week. And then you show up to Olympic trials yeah, and yeah. have the best performances of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, if I was, had to, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and you're also, you're speaking, I mean, almost more importantly, like I'm just trying to give people a paint a picture for the overall load so that people can understand what you're saying. And so you cut your training, we'll say by 40, maybe 50% in terms of volume, but you probably increased Ooh. intensity and you, and you had some of the best performances of your life, but your body also came alive in different ways. You had more confidence in your movement. You had more ability to express and execute the technical aspects of your swim, of your run. You felt more empowered to be, you know, fully embodied in sport. And that is really beautiful. And I, I just think it's so cool that you said, I mean, how many athletes actually would say that they had tears coming down their face during an event. Like the fact that you took, you had the presence of mind to appreciate that moment is just beautiful because so many times we're so wrapped up in what's happening and we're still driven by that fear, that mindset of fear, like, well, I'm, I'm doing so well, or I'm winning, or I'm in the league group, or I'm doing better than I've ever gone. But it's just that, that fear-based. Um, I know I've, I've had this like, I've seen it in myself in different phases and there are moments where I've had sort of a balance of those two, like, okay, I'm winning this race, but man, don't screw up. Do not fall down in this corner. <laughs> do not, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And all I have to do is not be an idiot and I will win. That's, that's sort of more of a balanced perspective maybe, but I'm still appreciating. You're still joyful. But I think a lot of athletes, even when they're having the best performances, they're like terrified. Like I'm, I'm going to get dropped or I'm going to blow up or I'm going to bonk or I'm going to have a double flat, you know, five meters before the last corner or whatever. And so that, I just want to take a moment to say, I think that's really cool that you had that presence of mind in your, in the Olympic trials and you were able to recognize the work that you had done and the progress you'd made. And also just like taking the moment of the fact that you were with these, the best in the world. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. It's such a gift. I, I, I also see it as a out of body experience. Really. It's just thinking, being grateful for that. Not like something I even did, but that I was able to, mm 
walk through this world and 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 learn to to get to that point and then want to just be are doing yay yeah yeah i mean it, it's it's so common for the athlete to assume that they have to bludgeon themselves repeatedly you know the analogy i use is i think a, a very common paradigm for athletes is it's like going swimming and every time you have a big training load you're dunking yourself and as soon as you come up for air, your head, your mouth is barely above water. You take it one inhale in and the mindset of the endurance athlete is, okay, that's it. I took one breath, dunk again, wham. And they just keep annihilating themselves for months and months. And in that paradigm, it's sort of inherently, it's sort of inherently assumed that you, that in order to be good enough or to get the best out of yourself, you have to constantly be broken down. You have to constantly be adding more, doing more, you know, that, that more is almost always better, that the load has to kind of always escalate and that you're sort of walking in this, this sort of muddled sea of fatigue. And, and, and unless you feel, unless you stand up from the dinner table and your legs don't burn, then you're not doing enough. It's like, you have to crush yourself constantly. I think that's the paradigm that is really not necessary. It's not constructive because you're not building a healthy whole human who can live in your body, as you said, right? You're not building a, a, a healthy human who can mm -hmm. inhabit their body in a, in a respectful and cooperative and, and sustainable way. What you're doing is you're tearing yourself down to make yourself better than. And, and it comes from a mindset of, of, I would say less than. A lot of endurance athletes convince themselves early, they're told, or they, they buy into the story of, well, I'm not that talented. I'm not that good, you know, whatever, whatever the story is they tell them, my VO2 is not that big, or my, my muscles aren't that strong, or I'm not that flexible, whatever, you know, or I'm just not good enough. So, but I'm going to make up the difference with determination and will and effort. And in particular, this is such an American mindset and I'm not bashing America here. I'm just saying it's something I've noticed. I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to observe, but it's like, it's like the good old American dream. Like, man, I'm just going to do this through sweat and hard work. And that's going to make me a badass. And I'm going to just work yeah. harder than the next person and, and train more and more and more. And they add and add and add to the pile instead of, you know, as you said, one of the biggest lessons you've taken away from this whole Exos journey and all the, the different aspects of your journey as an athlete is that you have this confidence in your body that it can express your joy for movement. It can express your and i'm paraphrasing your words a little bit so please correct me if i'm misspeaking but express your love of movement and your connection with nature in different forms and you have the confidence that it can and will do that when you embody it um not that your body's an mm -hmm. it that's the wrong adjective but when you embody her yeah there you go and you have that confidence you know it's a different it's like flipping the coin people the other side of it is almost like I don't have confidence in my body. I don't believe that it can do what I ask it to. I don't believe that it's going to be good enough on the start line of the Olympic trials. So I have to bludgeon it and punish it and mold it and hammer it until it becomes something else than what it is. And if you think about that for a minute, like why are we always trying to turn our bodies into something that they're not? Like like that's one-on-one of self-love. Like this is the this is the biological spacesuit I've been given this is the one i inhabit i'm going to love it and nurture it and let it express i'm going to live in my body so that was a really long-winded way of rephrasing that question <laughs> i guess a very tangible way to look at it is at those moments that i realized like when one i wouldn't feel beat up anymore uh, i would just i was recovering recovering was a part of my training at that point with for example excess whenever i would feel 
like too tired to like be joyful to like push off the wall for one more rep or something in the pool or or anything mm-hmm. i either i i could i could check myself i could say are you just wimping out here you know are you just wussing out and and you really need to get your mind right now or are you just done physically something is off and yeah often yeah you could differ, differentiate between the two yeah. and more often it was like no i'm done I, I need to i need to change something here I think when you really realize, like I've kind of been explaining with my new type of movement-based training that I was doing, that I realized how, just how many elements were going in to my performance, then I could easily shift my mind and pick another one that felt better and more refreshing at that moment. That mm. could have been a nap. It could have been a stretch, mm. right? Get out, on the, get, out, get out of the pool or the, off the bike and like lay on the ground and just enjoy the sun for a moment. Wow. That feels better than what was just happening to me on the bike, you know, cause you, here's the thing you've got to know and really love when it feels good. And I'm sure everyone knows when that is. Mm-hmm. And if, if, and, and if you can keep that in mind and want that always, mm-hmm. instead of it being the odd moment, which it would have been for me before, it would have been the odd moment that you felt great that you worked to having. Right. No, it's the opposite. If you can really keep that in mind and you can say, wow, this moment is not that. I am not happy right now. I can I not feel like I could crush it like I was crushing it yesterday mm-hmm. or like I know I can crush it. Let me wait till I, if that day, two days, what do I do within those days? Maybe I just sleep. Maybe I actually just take off and think about something else. Maybe I have to roll what I thought would be for you, but do whatever you have to do to and go again when you can go like that. You know, like you, you know, you can, and if you do that twice in a week, that's, what's so crazy. I mean, this is a very general statement, but like, if I can have two of those feelings in a week and do a killer workout twice, and you can get to Saturday or Sunday or whatever end of your week is and be like, that was amazing. Not because I had 27 amazing moments. When you focus on the joyful, the way you feel that you could really work towards realizing moments that you're not like that. And, and when you also realize how many things go into your performance neurologically, like you said, and all the other systems uh, that you can choose something else to do in that moment that is more joyful for you. And though that I think is the key to better performance, to more potential, to, to seeing your potential more. It's almost like you're flipping the traditional paradigm on the head, which is you can almost say that a, a conventional way of thinking about exercise is to intentionally make yourself feel bad. Like, you know, people glorify suffering. Like, oh, I went to the gym and the last, the burn, my legs were shattered after I did all those squats or whatever. Or I rode up this mountain on my bike or I ran up this mountain and I was just crushed at the top. You know, I was almost threw up. And that's their, that's the objective of their workout. You're saying the opposite, right? You're saying, I want to seek the, the moments where I have flow, where I feel good. And sometimes those moments may come during a workout, but maybe the workout feels yucky. And so in that case, you're saying, well, maybe we just stop the workout. That, maybe that doesn't serve you at that moment. Just lay in the sun and, and do a gentle stretch and feel your back loosen up and get longer or, or work on your hip mobility for a moment or whatever you feel like is your instinct and seek joy and seek good feeling moments. I don't know. It's, that's a very alien concept, Jesse. I don't think people are going to like it. You know, bodies aren't supposed to feel good. They're supposed to feel I, I know. I, I feel you. I know. You know what? I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to say it's, I'll be the first to say it's not for everybody. Hey, but I think that's there's a, a lot point. of people and that's totally respectfully. Yeah. Yep. Totally yeah. respect. There's yeah. going to be you know, I, I, all types of people. 
but for those who are who do want it which i think will be a lot more than mm-hmm. than uh than have it today for sure um you could you could kind of shift the focus to to that and yeah. realize just like i live like a child mm. like just look at their eyes of curiosity and exploration and fun and go and rest when they need mm-hmm. like i learned that from dogs when you throw them my friend's dog i was throwing a ball and he was the one who decided when he when he <laughs> wanted a break. I'm like, this is not that hard. I don't need to pay a gazillion dollars, you know, to figure out but the physiology of when I need a break. But I, but I do want to say like, yeah, just but those are interested in shifting the focus from what that burn or what that suffering ultimately give you versus what something else could give you in that moment. Mm-hmm. I think there's uh, there's something to be said. There's medicine in those you know words. That. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, I want to. If you're okay to continue, I, I want to be respectful of your time. We've been going for a while, but there's one other little bit I would like to unpack if that's okay. Are you good on time? Tell me. I'm, I'm fantastic. I appreciate you. Wonderful. Sleep. Um, yes. I would love to hear your perspective and philosophies on sleep. And I know you've got some unconventional, we'll say, sleeping perhaps habits. Um, maybe you can unpack sleep hygiene and what sleep means to you and how it's important for your recovery and your health as a human and those types of things. The thing I've observed most in sleep conversation is how much we have made of it, um, of which sometimes puts me to sleep. (laughs) No, but it's, it's, let me say that very calmly. I mean, my, I think you've gotten by now, um, my answers and my take on this are going to be heavy. And I want to say it again on the nature side of things, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to talk about sleep in terms of we, we screw with nature. We don't do a lot of the things right. That could be the best for the body. And now we want to talk about sleep in relation to the things that we don't get right. Otherwise mm-hmm. you see where I'm going yes. other than if we're, if we're talking about respecting the health and the human body and what it needs and nutrition of every one of these joints and our sensory organs, like our feet and we're, curious, uh, open-minded people learn something new every day. All these things have to come into play to then say, and now it's time for sleep, right? And then sleep is, it's a miracle, but just in, in terms of it can help in those times too. But at the same time, it the magic comes when we do all the other stuff and, and, and sleep is as respected, but no less, like we're not going to rely upon it also to to cure all of our problems. Imagine every moment of our life, every moment, every minute, so every second, Mm -hmm. no one of which is more important than the other, ever. Mm -hmm. Whether we're reading, pushing the pedal down, interacting with a fellow human, having to buy something and um, sleep. So in other words, these are all equally important moments and how we choose to do them. And for example, it ends up being how, I have a word for it, I'm not ready to share because it's, it, it, just gonna keep it to myself for a while, but it's a concept mm-hmm. that says like at any given moment, how, how uh, nature-based and, and respectful am I being for, for all sense of the word, allowing for this constant flow of energy within nature. Mm-hmm. In other words, in one moment, did I open a package my food or did I pull it off the tree, right? Did I walk barefoot out the door? Uh, did my shoes mentally inhibit my feet or did I put some really thick things on? Those are all more or less interactions with nature. So then we get to sleep. So the more we can do that at any given moment, the rules all apply for any one of those moments, including sleep. And right. this is just more physically and logistically sleeping about just thinking about your sleep. But 
But imagine that you then assessed from a point of view of how nature-based are you being for every moment and everything you've chosen to do. And you can say, well, I can't be very nature-based here or there. I'm going to still ride my bike six hours. It might not be the most human thing to do, but I appreciate that. I'm doing it for this reason. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to do these other things to kind of offset that. But at least I acknowledged that it's not the most natural thing to do. And that's going to help me then do the other things I need to do to kind of offset that. But if we completely disrespect that or think about the fact that six hours on the bike is is going to challenge our human our human nature, right? Mm-hmm. In an additional way. So if you can live through life, imagine kind of living it through like a life where you take all of that account when you shift your focus towards, towards that a little bit. And now we have sleep and sleep is kind of like, how are you even going to lay down to hit the pill? Are you, that's a big deal. Let's just say that. I don't know how you just lived your day, but high stress, low stress, playful on vacation and this, that, but that's going to affect how you even hit hit the pillow mm-hmm. as you know i don't want to repeat anything but at the same time I, I want to get to a point where I, like feet let's go back to what's ultimately nature nature and mm-hmm. for sleep this is where I, I guess i want to go which is defaulting to feet would mean you know putting shoes on only when you need it so if i default to nature regarding sleep and well the luxury of being in like this as we are in the states quite a um uh, circadian rhythm not like it's light at 3 a.m. kind of place. Yep. So I'm speaking also from the point of view of being in the States and near more near the equator, Costa Rica, where this taught me a lot about um, my sleep in Costa Rica because it's very near the equator as well, I realized. Which means that if you had your choice, you would, it would be get, it would get dark. It would be naturally dark. You would therefore wrap up your day and you would do less things. Right, and then right. you would, this is not, maybe nothing new when you paint the picture. It gets naturally dark, therefore you naturally slow down, yep. therefore you naturally do less things, plan your day to do that. If that's the case, you can use things like I do up my, my, in my little apartment here. I, I don't need light to go to the bathroom. I have a little bit of your eyes adjust. Right. And I don't flick on the light when I go to the bathroom. Right. Give you an right. example of that. There's many ways. I don't flick on my light. I have a little lantern that I plug in every while that I have to charge every four weeks or maybe two weeks. And I carry that around my house as I want to do things at the end of the night if I need light still, mm-hmm. just like I need a candle, right? Right. So this to realize the natural idea of when it gets dark, if we can do that, that's key. And then as far as uh, laying down before you know you're necessarily layered right when you need a few minutes to get to sleep that's that was a new one for me mm-hmm. uh, someone pointed out that if you hit the pillow and you fall right asleep i, I thought that was a, like a magic uh, skill i had but really my coach pointed out once that you know that means you're deprived a little bit right yeah. so you yeah. get there and have those 10 to 20 minutes to just chill right Mm-hmm. These are all markers that you've that I have done it well and right, right? So maybe it feels real great to be like, oh, that's an awesome day. I'm so tired, zonk. You know, yeah. no doubt that feels good. <laughs> I just would do it, you know. You know, and then then where am I sleeping? So I sleep on the floor. Why? Because again, going back to nature, I just don't need anything more. If I need more, I put more on. Right. I put, I use more things, but the basics of nature and how I've been come to experiment with that in my life, uh, just kind of travels. Of course, you have to sleep in certain places, um, observing kiddos and babies and how they can sleep anywhere. Remembering back to the days where I'd fall asleep on the metal bleachers in high school while during my brother's <laughs> wrestling match yeah. and be so comfortable and so quiet, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I have just, I had the 
gift of always having been a sleeper, you know, mm. like, like, because I was an athlete. So I'm, I'm taking everything away from like my experience comes from pushing those limits because I could always sleep because I always moved. Right. There's a clue there. Right. But right. here I am now realizing in my travels that I don't want to sleep on these shitty, shitty mattresses. You know, I don't, uh, they're old. They're sometimes funky, right? Yes. And, it really can death. I mean, that's immaterial, unnatural material. What can live in it, stay in it? Or if you don't do, you have to replace it. And if you want the best, then it's $1,000. And I tell you, yeah. I'm living a life right now, and this is really important, this conversation, where to tell me you bought something for this much money that's going to be better for your health or for some reason, I, I question maybe not the thing itself all the time, though sometimes, but still, what did it take to earn that money, right? What stresses did you have to go through to do that? Right. Like, for what reason did you do that? How did you even earn that money? What, you know what I mean? It's, so when we talk about things that cost money to be better for health, I think why we're here and we're telling you I sleep on the floor now, mm. it's not just about the fact that, you know, I'm a supple human, like a, like a, like a child melts into the floor because they're so supple, right? Mm. Well, I am that way. I'm 43 and I am supple and I use the floor. And even in these two years I've been doing it, I am more supple now because of that. Wow. And I can go into that more, um, how that is positions on the floor. Absolutely. But it's like the, the beauty of that moment is the need anything more. That is so, oh, it's so the joy to not look at them just can't wait to get on it and, and it's like right now it's in me but like to realize i don't need that i'm gonna sleep down that alone as far as self-reliance and that joy that comes with that mm. to go into the world with is amazing two i didn't have to earn a dollar to have the best thing for my body which is just to lie down without stress and sleep because i didn't have to make an extra you know how much money to have a place for a bed let alone you right. know a right. bed itself yeah. and and on top of that, then we can certainly talk physiologically and biomechanically and how when your body melts into it, my neck turns, my shoulders twist, my spine twists, my hip, like the gravity period gets to work hmm. and like twist my hip for me and my head and let my cervical spine like as my neck is twisted and I have no pillow and that came first before the bed because okay. when a friend also pointed out that that's like an orthotic, you know, where we're just holding this very mobile of our body in one place all day, right? right no it's like it needs to move the more i've even read about uh people's take sleep on the floor I, I see gaps and also what they're saying right they'll talk about having a neutral spine and that or you should sleep on your back no the point of it for me is that i i'm very comfortable on my right shoulder on my left shoulder when my head is on my when i'm on my stomach and my head is directly left directly right completely flat on the floor with no pillow right uh -huh. and then maybe my shoulders are square but my hips are twisted and my spine twists and my hips are flat on the floor you know like there's so many positions i move through throughout the night um and when you're on the hard flat floor like everyone knows when you're on one hard position at any time you adjust and move yeah, so yeah. I actually want to be on the hard floor because my body self-adjusts to different different positions. If I'm in another position, it has no reason to move, and it's actually probably a challenge to move if you're maybe on a mattress that's like sunken in and you have to use energy to like get to another position mm -hmm. versus just like, right, there's no resistance on the floor. You just move uh, unconsciously, what I'm saying. But yeah, yeah. yeah, wow, the more I've done it, the more it's all those things that have come together. So my neck is mobile as it's ever been, and I always had issues, you know, because I'm a right-handed person because – 
uh, all the reasons why I, I, I breathe to the left or right when my swimming, you know, like all the reasons why I would have held inside my neck. I, I tell you, it's even both sides. I can whip it around like a rock star now in, in a mm -hmm. drill I do. I, I uh, like my, and my dancer friend pointed out to us, she had us whip our heads like a rock star, like around, around, around. And I know that I'm good when I can whip my body parts around with no thought of getting injured, you know, mm. by doing so. And that's really rare, I find, in mm. people. <laughs> Just, <laughs> so really going back to what I think about sleep. Yep. Yes, you know what I was talking about. Um, those are some new basics that I don't think I hear much from people as far as the whys about sleeping on the floor, biomechanically, also like sociologically <laughs> and ecologically, and um, that it's, you know, when I wake up in the morning, oh, that's the other thing, I have to get off the floor. I want to know how many people yes. have a relationship with the floor these days and never touch it, therefore never have to get off it right. until they think they're old and they can't get <laughs> off it. So that's one example, you know, that's an example around and around and around. We have chairs, we use the floor. It's not new for people to hear that in the movement world, perhaps, right. but it's inherent. And when I off the floor, the first thing I have to do is squat up easily up and off the floor. And if I did that every day, I... It would not, not because I'm 102. No, if I did it when I was, you know, 101 and 364 days, I could do it on the next day mm -hmm. because I did it the day before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just, I don't, those things are not lost on me, put it that way. Mm -hmm. I, as little as it seems that I can do these, I still, it's not lost on me that the first thing I have to do is actually get myself off the ground every day. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Like we said about exercise, like this probably isn't for everyone. And there are some people who could probably work on their mobility and their, and their, relationship with their body for 10 years and probably not get to the point where they can sleep on a hard floor like you can, especially, um, I'm guessing you're on a tile floor cause you're in Mexico, right? So these days I'm on a tile floor. Yeah. 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 I have also slept on a pallet. Yes. Pallet with wood space between like space between like space between the wood strips. Yep. And I would just like nuzzle my hip into the side, you know, like, then I realized, Oh, texture might not be a bad thing. And then <laughs> friends would fall asleep, like on this, on the uh, sacks, sacks of corn, like these big, huge sacks of, I don't know what grain it was, whereas on the permaculture farm, you know, and like dogs or like kids, they would just like get in these sacks and be in these crazy positions and so comfy looking. And I'm like, what yeah. are we missing here? Yeah. Where did this come to be? And yeah. So you can start to like, think a little bit about, about how it could help. And I think all you might have to do, like for example, sometimes I lay down and imagine that twist, like 90-90 twist where your spine is, you're laying on the bat on your ground yep. and your hips are twisted, right? Your knee is at 90, something like that. Like imagine finding a position where you could feel gravity just like open your hip while you're in that position. Mm -hmm. Like someone might coach you to do, mm -hmm. right? Just like uh, very passively. And that's how I feel when I lay on the ground to go to sleep. It's like, and now I'm gonna do this for like, two hours or three hours or whenever I move next, you know, in the, in the middle of my sleep, right. I'm going to get another one of those. Well, it makes me think about, you know, dogs and cats, like our dog, we see him sleep on our hardwood floor and he rolls and he flips and he does belly up and, you know, weird splay, flaying, splaying limbs going in different directions and stuff. And then the other times where he's just curled up in a happy dog ball. And it's like, I mean, yeah, okay, he's a 25 pound dog, but big dogs do this as well. And they've got a fur coat. So that's a little bit of padding. But basically, dogs are perfectly comfortable sleeping on flat surfaces. Sometimes he goes to his bed as well, and we give him a padded bed. But he he moves, and he he's he's like animals are going to be to a certain degree. I mean, domesticated animals maybe break these rules a little bit, but all animals are really an expression of perfect natural relationship. Like they play when they want to play, they sleep when they want to sleep, they 
hopefully poop when they want to poop because you let them out and and you're around. <laughs> but it's like, and they drink when they want to drink and they eat when they want to eat. And and when they're rolling around and doing odd positions and and when they get up and they pendiculate and they stretch and they feel um. their bodies and they turn on that nervous system, it's such a natural function, right? And And when you really observe how a dog or a cat relates to the world and how when they're alert, they're observant and they're in their bodies, they're in the moment. And then when they're passed out, they're passed out. Right. Um, I, I just think it's fascinating. That's what it makes me think of is, is that connection to the ability to have a certain, first of all, just, you must have such a high level of function to be able to sleep that way and have it benefit you and not tip you over the edge. That's pretty clear, but also just the relationship that you have with the earth the fact that you can find rest there. I think there's something very wholesome about that. Yeah. Like I said, for everyone's journey, it's like it was little by little for me. Kind of. And at the same time, I, I challenge you to anyone to see what it's like to, for example, walk up a trail like that or to yep. lay on the ground and do adjust and know yourself. I mean, gosh, that's what mm. is self-awareness at that point. If, if, it's more of a question than a wonder if you are this person or that person. Clear your clear your mind, try it, and mm -hmm. learn from it, and make it your own. Because mm -hmm. every person who lies down right now would find a different position to be comfortable in, but I guarantee you everyone could find a comfortable position. If I told them, quit working, you don't have to work anymore. You've got a free hour, but your hour is to lay on the floor. Like, I'm sure people would find a comfortable position. Mm -hmm. there, so start there. Yeah. But it's just an example to be like, be more curious than to wonder, like to have two boxes and be like, I'm either going to be the person that wants to sleep on the floor or not. Right. Do it a little more. Don't mm -hmm. do it at all. But don't, don't even think about the boxes before you just try it. And this is a good example of that, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, and the, the other thing is so refreshing, right? When I wake up, I pick up my, my things and I put them in their perspective places and then I keep going with my day. And it's like, oh man. That's one thing I do want to say, because you brought it up as well, this idea of pendiculation, and we have to go in and into it because you just said it perfectly and you've talked about it with Charlie. Mm. But this this is a marker, an indicator for me. And it, it happened in Costa Rica. When in Costa Rica, uh, we had no Wi-Fi at our place. Um, there are very, very few lit, dim lit place. I was working as a guide, as a mountain bike guide, and we had this little apartment. And we'd get back and we'd work hard all day outdoors, which lent itself to making dinner at a normal time and good time, then being tired and it being dark and then going to sleep by like eight because there was really nothing else to do. And we had to get up early, but we didn't need alarms. Right. Because the sun would wake us up. That right. would be around 536, right, or six. Mm -hmm. And then we'd go from there. So no alarms, but we went to sleep organically. It was, it was that I learned there that uh, the light shut us down, we slept, woke up, and then went on with our day. But what would happen to later where a friend asked me, just what's your sleeping like? And I said, well, I wait, I sleep, I don't, I wake up when I, I mean, here's the thing, if you can I recommend it, if something is more important than this, I don't know. But mm -hmm. as you know, like sleep as much as you need, work your day around that. Yep. And I know in this day yep. and age, that seems crazy sometimes, but it's something to work back from, not to forget completely. Mm -hmm. And so I have had the ability to experiment with. So you wake up and then you lay there and I have to go right away. And I told him, yeah. And then I wait for my body to do this thing. And it's just like, you know, babies doing their cribs, I explain. And they like mm -hmm. open their arms up and they do the whole stretch. I was like, yeah. And then, then I, it's like, I pop out of bed, like I'm like a, a baby, a kid. Right. And they're all happy. <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, and he, 
he's right. You know what I mean? You've mm -hmm, seen it mm -hmm. and felt it. And it's like, yep. he said, that's pendiculation. I had no word for it. I was just explaining it to him because in the natural way of things until that happened, or even if it doesn't happen, it's like, you don't, I don't have an alarm that I have to get up right away. It's like you wake up and you kind of let like a child, you guys go back to the child, 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 right? You talk to dogs and cats, like watch them. So they have so many clues and I want to be as youthful all of my life. Yes. Look at what they do. Don't just get out of bed. They lay there, they tinker, they look beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then they eventually got a bed, hopefully if they can, when, they, when they're happy. And I mean, mm -hmm. like I said, I keep saying my age and it's not because of an age by any means, but wow, the perception is a whole lot different that I can keep getting out of bed literally like a two-year-old, both with my mobility and with my energy and with my like, zing, okay. <laughs> and that's not coffee, by the way. <laughs> that was just, the, the right? You know what I mean? That's just Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just Jesse. Well, I can't even take credit. It's like, yeah, it was like sunlight, no light, and then uh, all the things. But I kind of, it really helps. I hope it helps to paint a picture of what nature could be like. And, and we make it so, as I started in the beginning, so this complicated thing, which I'm not saying that sometimes in some instances, and to work back from some learned patterns and learned conditioning of the brain of how we have to work through that with maybe words. But like, guys, sleep is that. And until and, and all, I think it would help a lot of a lot of us if we acknowledge that that's all it is, and then worked on the issues we might have it from that vision instead mm -hmm. of thinking about it only from the issues that all the other ways you can think about it. So I, I that's a gift that's been given to me, and I, I does that make sense the way I say that? Yeah, I I just want to say I really appreciate your you have a great way of looking at topics and the way people think about things and reframing the structure from which people mm. kind of frame their belief systems or a perspective or maybe a philosophy about things. You have a great way of kind of questioning that and encouraging people to look at things from a different angle, a different viewpoint or shed a different light, however you want to say it. So that is, uh, that's definitely one of your gifts. And I just, I also want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and, share all the things you shared. Um, you know, I, I hope people find this episode fascinating. I do, I love our conversations and uh, hopefully when you're in Boulder, maybe if you're willing, we can come into the studio and do another round and just go down some some Jesse philosophical wormholes because I really enjoy uh, our conversation. You know, Cole, it, I know as further I go down these wormholes, uh, it, I know it takes two. So this would have never happened had you not been there too and, 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 and be realizing this along your journey. And I appreciate that our journeys intertwined and can actually talk about this because even those who are still listening, um, I appreciate you too, or everyone who tapped in. Yes. Um, but like it takes, it, right, it wouldn't, it's not, it, like I said, it won't be for everyone. And maybe it wasn't for me 10, mm -hmm. 20 years ago as well, but wow, this journey is amazing. And I really hope we can keep spreading that touching yes. and being one with nature. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And um, Jesse, tell us where people can find out more about you. Um, you've got an Instagram and you've got your website, of course, Feet Freaks, which is F-E-E-T-F-R-E-E-X.com. That's Jesse's site. It's a really powerful resource. She's got some great blogs on there about feet and she talks, unpacks some of the ideas we touched on today. She's also got some really cool resources on where you can buy some really cool minimalist shoes. It's she also has ideas on how you can make some of your own shoes. Yeah, I think that. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm, I'm reworking as maybe many of us are right now in these six months, uh, what, where I'm going next and what I'm doing. Um, I would say, yeah, my Instagram is live and now at this moment it is flowing.fire, flowing.fire. I recently changed it from wild soldier. Okay. You might've known me from wild soldier, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, flowing, flowing.fire on Instagram. And I'm not doing a whole lot. I'm like regrouping, but Connect to me there if you're interested, because if and when anything else comes of it, I'll be there to announce or tell what's next. Um, Great. And also, which was like, yeah, and the website. The website is updated. Thank you for you know, mentioning it. I will say that it is, as far as speak goes, it's just reframing exactly. It was created because the all I saw out there at that time, which was now five years ago, and there's more out now, is people framed the, their idea of feet in terms of, the, injury, the injuries that ha they have and what mm -hmm. they need and the footwear they need to use for all the things, all the things. And this is a different on it. It's putting feet first, the glory and the genius that they are um, and kind of working from there and how not to inhibit that and to feed how amazing they are. So, yes, I, uh, if you check that out and keep in touch there, that's also another way. Okay, wonderful. Thanks, Colby. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, Cycling in Alignment patrons, thanks for listening. As always, if you have comments about this episode or questions, or you just want to tell me that I suck, you can email me at cyclinginalignment at fastlabs.com and I'll respond in some form, way, or shape. Or know that I will at least read your fork feedback and consider it. Again, if you want to reach out to Jesse, you can find her on her website, Thanks for listening and consider connecting with nature. Have a good day.